Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organized crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organized crime around the world. This episode is called The Politics of Violence in Mexico and Central America. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon from wherever you are joining us today. Um, my name is Cecilia Farfan. I work at the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at the University of California, San Diego. And today I have the great pleasure of moderating a conversation on the politics of violence in Mexico and Central America. Just a reminder to everyone who's joining our session, this is a catwalk session. So the idea is for our presenters to speak for five minutes um, about on the research and any results and why they matter, and then have a lot of interaction with you. So you're highly encouraged to submit uh, your questions via the Q&A button. You can also use the chat, but it would help us uh, more if you use the Q&A. So the idea is, as I mentioned, for this to be very interactive, to have this conversation. Before we start, uh, on behalf of the other panels, we do want to express our solidarity to uh, Dr. Sandra Ley, whose uh, institution in Mexico right now is facing uh, some very difficult challenges from the government. And so if you would like to sign a petition uh, supporting CIDA and supporting her institution, we're going to share uh, that uh, link uh, in the chat. So please feel free to sign and share uh, as widely as possible. This is a critical time in Mexican academia. So now that I mentioned that, let me start uh, with Roman, who will speak on Mexico. We'll go Mexico, Central America, Mexico, Central America. And again, highly encouraged to submit your questions. I'll be moderating. And Roman, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to be here with, with you. Thank you for having me, um, being here with, uh, with Gemma, Sandra, you and, and, and Marcus. Um, I'm uh, Romain Lecourt. I'm the founder of uh, the independent research center called Noria Research, and I'm uh, currently program officer at uh, Mexico Evalua in, in, in Mexico City, working on uh, public security and violence uh, reduction. What I what I will present today um, is the product of, of research and field work uh, conducted in Mexico, particularly in the states of Michoacán and Guerrero since 2013 and the product of research and analysis in the country in general, trying to better analyze a couple of uh, central questions that I think will um, animate us today. Um, it's like, how can we better understand the relations between public authorities and criminal or violent groups in Mexico? How can we move away from the refrain of narco stories, state weakness, failure, capture, and all that? How can we actually analyze state power as it actually works in reality and not how we want it to function in theory? And given say that, of course, how can we explain um, the levels and practices of violence that we witness in Mexico, both in the hands of criminal groups and public armed forces? We're talking about more than 300,000 dead in 15 years, more than 100 thousand disappeared, daily shootings, torture, mass graves, and massacres. So basically, how can we better document and understand the relations between the state and criminal groups without falling into the idea of a zero-sum game where in order to thrive, one actor should annihilate the other? I think the first idea must be said clearly. 
those relationships are not a zero-sum game. It does not work like that in reality. Political criminal relationships are fluid, involving continual interactions between multiple private and public actors. And those interactions are unstable and sometimes violent, but they do not necessarily indicate the capture, weakening, or failure of the state. Rather, I think what we see is overlapping sovereignties that collaborate and compete in a given territory. The first idea um, I'd like to, to, to bring to the table and, and for the questions and, and, and dialogue, of course, is the stability of the political system in, in Mexico. In Mexico, actually private criminal or violent groups do not seek to overthrow the political system, but rather to gain or maintain an advantageous position within it. And to support this argument, um, I have a, four ideas, basically. Like First, the classic theory about state monopoly on the legitimate use of force falls very short in explaining what's at stake in Mexico. In fact, I think it's important to understand and acknowledge not only that the state does not seek to monopolize violence, but that it, ne it, but that it never really did, actually, and that it does not impede its formation process and actual power. Second, then we have violent social orders. It means it might seem paradoxical, sorry, but order does not necessarily imply the absence of violence, but rather the regulation of its use by multiple actors. So in this case, the word order that we read uh, a lot can be understood, I think, as the collection of rules that govern the use of violence and the modalities of power and authority, particularly at the very local level. Third, public authorities are not passive bystanders in the operation of violent social orders. They're both participants and arbitrator, setting the rules and the terms of violence. In the Mexican context, there is no shortage of historical examples of this. And fourth, the power of the state is neither perfect nor absolute across time and space. It does not imply a normative conclusion about the quality of its power, contrary to what we read about weak democracy, failed state, and all that. Actually, violent order does not lead to the collapse of the state, but instead a redefinition of its role in regulating the use of violence relative to a multitude of actors. So if we accept these four propositions, I think what we observe on the ground are local complex political conflicts that involve violence. Then. It's essential to abandon the idea that political criminal relationships are based on processes of absolute clear-cut dominations. The interactions are unstable and the Lord of today is the surf of tomorrow. So what we see is networks of interdependence marked by collaboration, instability, and conflict. So basically what you see on the ground is multiple actors interacting in a quite disordered day-to-day -day way. Something important, of course, is what's the use of violence in all this? I think in Mexico, unfortunately, violence, be it legitimate or not, be it in the hands of the state or criminal groups, does not represent an anomaly, an obstacle, something that should disappear. Unfortunately, violence is a political resource. It's a tool that allows multiple actors to establish or preserve a position of power relative to competitors and unstable relations. 
In this sense, there is a continual back and forth in the relationship between state authorities and criminals without having total control of one actor over the interactions. The result, of course, is that the categories of good and bad, legitimate and illegitimate, legal and illegal, are fuzzy and fluid, and we should understand them and research them that way. Many times, the narco or the criminal, the violent actor, to use a more neutral term, is also a cacique, a boss, a political leader, a police official, a member of the military, a governor, a mayor, a council person, a businessman, among many others. Therefore, rather than seeking to impose normative or moral categories, I think we should analyze the constant changes in alliances and hierarchies to understand how power is designed and held in those territories that, despite what is often said, have not been abandoned by the state. Nevertheless, I think the trap, of course, is to conceptualize the power of those local bosses or sovereigns in opposition to public authorities and not in articulation with them. What I observe in Mexico is that hundreds of local bosses or sovereigns evolve in the same territory, forming kind of layers of sovereignty that overlap and where the presence of one violent actor does not imply the disappearance of the other. Again, the case, this is the case, sorry, that we see in municipalities where avocado is produced in Michoacan, for example. This is what happened uh, during the autodefensas militias in Michoacan as well, where you have de facto sovereigns that build their power within the national borders in collaboration, in spite and against the state. So they represent ephemeral projects of sovereignty and power constantly threatened by other actors and competitors, which include public authorities or forces. So the last question is, where is the state in, in all that? Well, I think in Mexico, the state is everywhere. In the Mexican context, I believe that the crises we observe do not arise from the absence of the state or the presence of informal bosses at the local level. They have always been present. I think the crisis come from the ever-growing centrality of violence as a resource and a political tool to actually access local power, both for public and private actors. Therefore, conflicts are resolved through exerting lethal and non-lethal forms of violence that are ever more extreme, included, including those perpetrated by security forces. The objectives here is not only to obtain a better position within the political game, it's actually to obtain maximum domination, often through the annihilation of adversary and their supporters. Yet, coming back to the idea of non-monopolization of violence by the state, the oh, role of public authorities and institutions. Yeah, I'm finishing. Thank you. The role of authorities in these processes is multiple and sometimes counterintuitive. I think what authorities actually seek is reliable intermediaries brokers and allies at the local level, even if they are violent or criminal actors. That's what we see when the state actually negotiates with local uh, violent actors, an example of governance through violent private uh, groups. In this configuration, and I, and I will conclude with that, the state does not seek to impose itself as a unique sovereign but I think to reorganize local violent brokers to its benefit. 
even if it implies giving political space to illegal violent groups. And by extension, I think the policy solutions that we were trying to imagine to provide, again, a solution to what's going on in Mexico will remain unattainable in the absence of careful local research and local knowledge on what's going on at the very local level. And I think it's urgent that, that, that we do so. Thanks so much. Thank you, Roman. Um, Gemma, the floor is yours. You're, of course, a scholar of Mexico, but also of Central America. So we're very interested in your, your take on these um, two regions or two areas. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cecilia. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, and so my name is Gemma Clope Santa Maria. I'm an assistant professor of Latin American history at Loyola University of Chicago. And at the moment, I'm a Mercury Fellow at the Freiburg Institute of Advanced Study in, at the University of Freiburg. Um, so it's really a pleasure to be in conversation with colleagues, uh, which work I admire so much. And many of the things I'm going to say actually echo a lot of what Romain just, just mentioned. Um, and these are a few general ideas uh, that I can discuss further in the Q&A with more um, historically grounded and empirical examples. Um, but this is based basically on my past and ongoing research on gangs and security responses in Northern Central America, as well as on my work on lynchings in modern and contemporary Mexico. Uh, and my main goal here is to question a narrative that implicitly or implicitly characterizes criminal violence in these countries as non-political or post-political. That is to say, a form of violence mainly driven by economic interest and that can be contrasted with the political violence of these regions, quote unquote, past, perpetrated either by state actors, guerrillas, or paramilitary forces based on political interest. Now, before discussing why I believe this characterization of criminal violence is wrong, let me quickly say that this narrative is not entirely groundless. In the 1980s and 1990s, these countries experienced a transition from military or highly undemocratic governments to electoral and liberal democratic regimes. These so-called democratic turns signal, at least in principle, the demilitarization of police forces and the desanctioning of the criminalization and repression of political forms of dissent. While far from perfect, these transitions fed into a linear narrative that claims that we went from the violence exercised by primarily by repressive governments to a violence committed by gangs, drug traffickers, and other quote unquote petite criminals with no political motivations and with allegedly no relation to state forces. Hence, in this narrative, the violence we witness today is not primarily that of the state against its citizens, or that is what the narrative says, but that of so-called criminals against citizens. And the state only is seen here as intervening to protect law-abiding citizens from these so-called criminals. In the interest of time, I'll just briefly list four reasons as to why I believe this characterization of criminal violence as non-political is wrong. So first, it has become increasingly clear that transitions to democracy did not bring about the type of police reform and demilitarization that was much expected. In Mexico and Northern Central America, repressive forms of policing are driven by political interest. In particular, they are driven by political elites interest of securing more votes through the use of mano dura or a hard fist hand policies militarized responses, and even extrajudicial measures. Second, 
While much literature claims that criminal violence emerges in places where the state is absent, it has become increasingly clear that the state is present in the communities where these forms of violence exist, but it's present in irregular and reactive ways. That is to say, while, this, while the state tends to be absent in the sense of the steady provision of public goods and services, it tends to be excessively present when it comes to militarized, repressive, and short-term interventions that seek to, to make a show of force against so-called criminal actors. Third, as recent literature suggests, there are strong connections between state actors and criminal groups. And we can talk about examples, but I'll just mention that in Mexico's recent past, uh, Lynchings involve the participation of majors and police officers in the organization. Even today, where there is not such an overt participation in the organization of lynchings, the police is oftentimes present, but is simply incapable or unwilling to protect suspected criminals. Although cases where the police is outnumbered by lynch mobs could suggest that the problem is one of a state absence, this absence needs to be qualified. It is a selective absence, referring to lack of public services or of citizen-based forms of policing properly trained and equipped, but that it is often combined with the reactive presence of state and federal police officers or of the military at times when the state wants to assert its authority. Lastly, my fourth point is evidence suggests that these so-called criminal actors are not are, are political. If we go beyond an understanding of the political centered on electoral processes, and we look at how they participate in the creation of political and social orders, no? so exactly like uh, what Roman was mentioning. In the case of lynching, perpetrators are, through their threats and actions, defining the boundaries of acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Just like state actors, they exercise a form of social control that divides citizens between law-abiding and criminal others. They act then like proxy states or semi-sovereigns that reproduce rather than defy the state's partiality, violence, and injustice. And again, we can talk more about this uh, with empirical cases or historical cases in the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Gemma. Sandra? Thank you, and, and thanks for the solidarity, everyone, uh, in this troubled time. Sorry for uh, my technical problems, but I think we're all set. Um, so I'm, I'm probably going to be changing a little bit the discussion towards um, not, uh, uh, of course, a lot of criminal violence, but also thinking about what is the role of civil uh, of civil society, and I think that touches upon Hema's uh, uh, research too, uh, and, and part of what she has just discussed. Uh, so uh, for me, the uh, something that I'm interesting now in in assessing and going deeper into is. Um, criminal governance in a particular part of the controls that it exerts. We know that we, when we have been talking about criminal governance, we refer to three different types of controls, public, political, economic, and social. Uh, and, and we know that through violent and nonviolent means, uh, organized crime imposes de facto uh, controls in these three different areas. It has become very clear in the case of Mexico, the way in which these political controls have been exerted, particularly in the uh, most recent election, uh, which uh, Cecilia and Roman have been working uh, very, uh, very thoroughly understanding uh, the, the role of those political controls, uh, among other types of violence that are present. Uh, but criminal strategies to control civil society have not been systematically analyzed yet. 
we know even less about the subsequent capacity of civil society groups to collectively organize in response to violence. And so my current project addresses two intertwined questions. Why does organized crime target civil society and under what conditions can civil society organizations confront and resist criminal governance? Um, to understand this, I believe that we have first, of course, to disaggregate what organized crime means and six, right, as, as Roman and, and, and Hema was say, were saying, organized crime is enabled by these protection networks through which state and criminal uh, actors collude. Uh, in the absence of such protection, uh, information gathering becomes crucial uh, for success in the criminal world. And this is something that cl classical works by Gambetta and Varese have shown. Uh, and, and this is where the social aspect of criminal governance comes in, I believe. Residents in local communities are particularly valuable for the establishment of local protection and the control of information cha channels. So some groups of residents, however, can be more or less val valuable for protection and informational purposes. Uh, they may have fine-grained information about what happens in their communities and their surroundings. They have the capacity to report such activity. They can open or close valuable sources of uh, uh, informational channels about uh, that will be available for any criminal organization seeking to establish control. So therefore, organized crime is interested in regulating uh, civilian behavior to control what people can say, what people can do, uh, limit what state authorities can discover about criminal activity, uh, reduce police attention, and ultimately deepen uh, protection networks. Uh, but something that I believe we need to understand and disaggregate a little bit farther is that a civil society in these communities is diverse, right? Then some groups of residents may be more or less valuable for organized crime and for informational purposes. We have human rights activists, we have journalists, we have churches and religious leaders, we have the private sector and business leaders. And we know, for example, that religious leaders might have access to information, but most importantly, they may have the ability to influence some behavior. We have human rights activists and journal, journal, journalists that uh, are crucial elements for informational chan channels. Business leaders might have a more direct channel with policymakers to lobby in favor of certain policies. And they may be therefore more valuable for how protection networks reconfigure. So we need to think more about why, how, how are these different groups within civil society valuable and how do they insert within this logic of, social of, of the social controls of criminal governance. Um, overall, I, um, I argue that to understand the, relation, the relationship between organized crime and civil society, as well as the social controls that criminal groups may seek to impose, we must first acknowledge these forms of civil society, uh, from human rights organizations to media, churches, and private businesses, as well as the various purposes that civil society organizations can, uh, can cover. So I further contend that this nature and activity of each group is likely to be valuable for organized crime groups for different reasons and in distinct ways to maximize protection and information. Uh, and consequently, this interaction between organized crime and the diverse set of organizations that compose civil society is likely to differ from one group to another. And overall, uh, Perhaps what uh, an argument I'm, I'm, I, I make here is that the greater leverage 
that a given organization has and, uh, um, and its members to affect organized crime protection and information gathering strategies, the higher the violence that these groups are likely to face. Uh, so far, we have evidence that uh, of different ways in which these different groups have organized, sometimes through protests against insecurity, through, sometimes through a direct channel with policymakers, sometimes through their own armed strategies. And so that is something that I'm seeking to uh, understand now uh, as a way to explain uh, how civil society in the midst of violence can uh, resist and uh, become part of the dynamic of organized crime uh, in, the, in the Mexican case. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. Marcos, please, um, floor is yours to close this first round of uh, comments. Thank you so much. And thank you, Romain and Cecilia, for the invitation to this session. Uh, my name is Marcus. I'm a researcher at the Global Security Program at the Pembroke College in Oxford. Um, I will now look into crime and policing, but from the angle of security governance reform uh, in, in Guatemala. Um, in 2021, uh, Guatemala has been classified by the uh, Global Organized Crime Index as a, a high criminality, low resilience country, and it ranks 23rd, just a bit below Brazil. The 2021 index is quite interesting in this regard, also what we're discussing in this panel, as it uh, not only focuses on state authorities uh, and their relation to crime in the sense of that states, if they are quite strong, they can actually be resilient to crime, but the authors of the index uh, also show that the state's monopoly of violence, while it can increase this resilience, uh, is quite flawed as long as criminal actors are uh, embedded in the state of apparatus, um, which according to the index represents the most prevalent type actually of criminal actors worldwide. So state security actors like the police can be drivers of criminal activities, which may be contrary to some of the idealized perceptions we may have on, on law enforcement. So the boundaries between the state and, and organized crime uh, are porous in, in Guatemala, as you all know, um, while the UN-sponsored International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, CICIC, has been quite successful in breaking up some of these corruption networks and so-called illegal clandestine security apparatuses that have been operating in the country since the civil war uh, that ended in 1996. The old corrupt guard actually has prevailed. The so-called Pacto de Corruptos operating from the Guatemalan Congress has achieved that the CICIC mandate has not been renewed in 2019. And also there's increased pressure on anti-corruption attorneys most recently. So uh, in general, um, perception in Guatemala is according to America's barometer that uh, people think 68% of citizens think uh, that their country is uh, corrupt and trust in state institutions quite low, including in the police, as only 31% of Guatemalans actually trust uh, their force that has been founded in the year after the end of the war. So this last month alone, it's November 2021, we see a lot of uh, examples that illustrate um, uh, the deep-rooted problems of Guatemalan uh, policing, to name just two. First, um, the Guatemalan uh, National Civil Police have engaged in violent uh, oppression of indigenous communities, protests against nickel mining projects in uh, the region of Isabel. And second, the narcotics division of the Public Prosecutor's Office of Guatemala has recently ordered the detention of 19 police agents allegedly forming part of a micro-trafficking network that pushes drugs in, in Guatemala City. So, so these two examples speak to broader patterns of, of violent protection of private capital on the one side, and also to the blurred lines between crime and, and the law in Guatemala. 
And it comes a bit as a surprise because there's not a lot of countries around the world that have such a long history uh, of internationally sponsored uh, police, uh, uh, post-conflict police reform. And Gema has hinted to that uh, already. Um, only in this year, the, the Justice Sector Reform Commission of the Guatemalan Congress has announced yet another new plan for a new police uh, law. As the news outlet Republica has reported, the congressmen and women, however, did not really specify uh, the reform project, but stated that it was, quote, urgent to resume democratic security in the country, unquote. What democratic security would mean has always been quite contested in post-conflict Guatemala, and my research uh, on 25 years uh, of security governance there, uh, reform there that I've done during my uh, doctoral uh, studies has demonstrated uh, uh, why. Um, I approached the reform process more in a sociological sense as a transnational social field, a field that has developed own rules, a diverse range of actors, national and international competing over central strategic positions in the reform process and, and uh, of uh, authority over the reform process. So what I found in this field is, is, is quite, uh, it has become a quite solid, relatively autonomous one that reproduces despite ongoing limitations and failures uh, of reform process. So while the field is, is divided into uh, an orthodox and a, a more heterodox pole, meaning that the former is more oriented to like iron fist policing, law and order, and the latter more towards softer citizen security approaches. What they have in common is a, is a vested interest of keeping this reform process coming. So politicians, bureaucrats, and experts from all across the world actually fight over the control of this field and reproduce uh, by that uh, the limited reform process. Uh, as failure for some reformers actually always brings opportunities for others. So my research has at least three implications that are relevant to understanding the politics of violence and crime as we discuss it here. First, professionalization of state authorities alone will not be enough to improve policing and security provision in a country uh, as long as the underlying rationales of security which are informed of national security thinking, counterinsurgency perspective of a new internal enemy, not the Guerrero anymore, now it's a criminal insurgent, um, uh, are not replaced with a perspective more on human uh, or people-centered security. And as long as predatory informal rules, as Rachel Swartz, I think, has, uh, has called it recently, exist, which can hardly be fought by institutional reforms. And the second, um, my research also suggests that transformative potentials of international experts are quite overestimated. Not only have orthodox and law and order actors of the reform field been able to appropriate and reinterpret new reform approaches. And one example, for instance, is crime prevention that looks quite progressive, but has often reproduced authoritarian patterns of uh, making of public space, who is included, who is excluded, etc. Happy to talk about it in more detail later. But it's also not only local resistance uh, that reproduces these negative consequences. It's also an overly idealized and ahistorical view on security approaches, such as community policing, crime prevention, community resilience, which are often inherently flawed in and of themselves. And third and final point, um, the overly technical focus of the security reform process is a major problem. The reformers search for a way to provide better expertise, more rational and effective reform approaches has ignored the deep seating political dimensions of police reform and the blurred lines between the state and criminal and corrupt interests as, as they have been mentioned before. Um, in this depoliticized context, the ineffective and illeg illegitimate and at times also violent status quo of policing in Guatemala could reproduce as political interests 
and criminal practices have actually outlasted all these reform practices. So uh, therefore, and with that I want to conclude, it's crucial not only to bring politics into the reform debate, but also open the field of reform for those historically marginalized within this reform field, but also with, by the state in more general. Um, only once a structural questions such as deep standing, um, deep seeding inequalities uh, are addressed, and once the reform of the security sector is actually embedded into a way broader state reform uh, process, uh, I think meaningful change will only then be possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marcos, and thank you everyone for staying within uh, the time. Uh, just a reminder for everyone who joined us later, this is a catwalk session, meaning that you are highly encouraged to submit your questions via the Q&A button or uh, the chat. The purpose of this session is to be very interactive and really have a conversation uh, with our panelists. You know them from Twitter. Today is your opportunity to really um, talk with them. So we have a couple of questions already. So. One is for Gemma, but I believe all of you could answer, which talks about the conditions that allow the transition of criminal organizations um, for political actors to post-political actors and why this transition takes place. The other one uh, is related to femicide and um, what part do the governments or criminal organizations play in committing these crimes, if any, and why? And so, you know, who are the actors uh, behind this killing? So if you... Like we can start with these two questions and we can go now in the reverse order if Marcos, you would like to um, start with this and, and we'll go from there. Um, I think I will quickly pass on to Gemma as the question was for her, that the first one. So, and I, let me think a bit of it about the other question. Sure. If anyone wants to, again, uh, join in the question that was addressed to Gemma, please feel free to jump in. Um, thank you. So, so yeah, this is uh, this allows me to elaborate a little bit on my argument. So, so basically, what I'm trying to to say is I'm trying to call into question this notion that what we see today is 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 some sort of post political violence, and in the sense that it's posterior to or after the political violence that these countries experienced uh, prior to the 1980s and 1990s democratic transitions. No. Uh, this level of like post-political assumes on the one hand that state responses to crime are devoid of politics as if they were not driven by political interest. And as I said uh, before, they are clearly driven by political interest, uh, even if we understand political in, in the narrow sense of the word. I mean, they are seeking to attract votes from uh, citizens that we know, I mean, based on surveys and, and more qualitative, quantitative, qualitative evidence, sorry, that citizens support. I mean, citizens strongly support Manodura policies in Northern Triangle of Central America, in Mexico. Uh, citizens su support also militarized interventions, despite the fact that we have plenty of evidence that these approaches have utterly failed, that what we need are citizen or human security approaches, but unfortunately, this is what sells in the ballot box. No, I mean, so clearly, um, politicians from left and right, I mean, we need to pass also go beyond this left and right narratives that doesn't allow us to grasp what is happening in this region. What is happening is more in line with this concept of, of populist, uh, of punitive populism, no? I mean, where uh, punitivism is, is really attractive in electoral terms. And then the other part of, of the question that I want to criticize uh, or call into question is that this post-political label um, assumes that these criminal actors do not have a political agenda, no? or that they are not political. And, and 
and again, um, I mean, as Romain was, was saying too, right? I mean, and Sandra's work and her recent book with Guillermo Trejo also showed this, no? I mean, these groups uh, create criminal forms of governance. I mean, they create a forms of social order and even the, you know, the lynch mobs that I have analyzed historically and in the present uh, that are, you know, usually considered as um, this kind of like irrational and spontaneous mobs, they are creating a social order. I mean, they are acting as actors that want to establish social control um, and a form of sovereignty, if we understand sovereignty as he or, or she who decides who is going to die and who is going to uh, live in a, in a certain community. You know? so, so those are the, the main points I wanted to make. And, and in relation to femicides, if I could just say, um, there is much research that needs to be done in this area uh, in terms of um, tracing the responsibility of criminal and also state actors. But I would just say that in the region, um, the state's responsibility, we see it at least in two ways. On the one hand, clearly it's a question of impunity and negligence. And, and that is why the, the, the historically the term, not only in this region, but in Latin America at large, implies uh, the intentional killing of women because they are women, but it's also associated to this state impunity and the, um, and the very harmful abandonment uh, or lack of action in regards of, of these crimes. But also we see the active participation of, uh, of police uh, officers in, in these killings, no? in, in femicides, as, as well as in sexual violence. And we still have to we need like more uh, systematic data, but we also now know that the war on drugs, and this came in a report all, already from a few years ago, the war on drugs in the Northern Triangle of Central America and in Mexico has considerably increased the vulnerability of women. So militarized responses, we know we have evidence, uh, have increased the vulnerability of women, uh, both to sexual violence and to femicides. No? Um, and then the last thing I would say is in regards to criminal groups, what we know so far uh, is that um, it's very much uh, related to organized criminal groups that are dedicated to human trafficking and to sexual trafficking, no? and that these networks uh, operate in a way uh, where they, they might combine the use of uh, family ties or, or sentimental ties where women are, uh, you know, the, the word in Spanish is enganchadas. I mean, they are, uh, at, you know, brought in uh, from traditional family networks of community networks, and then they are trafficked in order to be uh, sold or exploited sexually. And that also can lead to femicides. Sandra, you want to? jump in. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to add on, on the second question of femicides, because I think that um, uh, just in case the audience might be interested from the work by Estefania Vela and Laura Tuesta from CDPPD and Intersecta, they have a really interesting and important report on, on this point that Gemma was saying on militarization and the effect that it has had on rising violence against women, uh, on how they are all uh, uh, victims of the of of the militarization strategies, right, and the way that police uh, armed forces are being used on the ground, and at the same time, point the audience to the work by Adi Cordova, who has amazing new research on how uh, police structures matters a lot for how violence against women plays out, showing how the how the Brazilian uh, uh, police was reformed. Uh, actually had an impact in, in containing violence against women on the one hand, and on the, on, on the other hand, showing how as, uh, as, as criminal groups expand their territorial control, they also expand the use of sexual, of sexual violence. And that actually has a, 
even further consequences in terms of their participation and engagement in, 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 in their political and social lives in their communities. So this has, uh, let's say like an amplification of violence. It's not only about the violence that they are being, that they're facing outside their houses, they're facing it in their houses because now they have to stay at home and they're even more vulnerable. So, uh, uh, it, it, to, so to the question, it's, it's, not, it's not only about the aggressors that they face at home or the aggressors that they face outside, it's actually both, both attacks happening at the same time because violence are becoming over, are overlapping, right? And, and it's hard now to disentangle this. Thank you, Sandra. Uh, Marcus or Roman, whoever wants to. Yeah, Marcus. I mean, a bit connected to um, the question that the Kema has already answered on, on the po uh, political dimension, also a new one that came in here for all men, uh, actually, but uh, quickly saying a few words on it, um, about organization uh, of, of negotiations with organized crime, of if this would be a way to address the short-term issues of violence. And I think, yeah, um, the, the, it was mentioned the case of San Salvador, but that case also showed how um, a gang can actually constitute as a more powerful political actor. I mean, we have seen that in, in gang studies for a long time, right? That the, the prison can actually act as a certain driver um, of organization of these kind of groups. And I think the truth in San Salvador for 2014 has actually showed um, that they then after that have gained significant political power and that that might be an unintended consequence, even though violence can go back in the long term, they might have a, a stronger position to negotiate uh, with, with state authorities. Um, that's just one point I wanted to quickly could you mention, but I think I'm sure Roma has more to say about that in Mexican context. Thank you, Marcus. Um, just just to go back um, really quickly on on, on what 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 Gemma was uh, was saying about what we consider we, we consider being political or non-political. I think it's extremely important. I think her work actually shows um, that in the Mexican case, we still follow this idea that we had you know, a, a peaceful authoritarian past that then transitioned to a, a chaotic democratic regime somehow. And, and, and what, what Hema's work and what, what historians um, have very, very, very successfully shown in, in the past uh, years in Mexico and, 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 and abroad is that basically this idea of, of a rupture between of a peaceful past and a violent present is absolutely not true. I mean, so, so what, what we are trying to um, disentangle here is actually what has changed probably in the regulation of violence, what is tolerated and what it's not. Um, what are the new actors, private and public, interested in, in using violence to achieve political, economic, social goals, right? And, and, and I think that's where the conversation between Mexico and Central America should happen much more actually, like that we should be um, exchanging and, and, and dialoguing much more to try to understand questions like the truth in, in, San, in San Salvador between, between criminal groups and, and, and the state, you know, like there's so many ideas of negotiations and, 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 and justice and what's going on in Mexico and how could you pacify Mexico that actually rely on the idea that you have in front of you, rational actors, public or private, criminal or state, that actually want to make violence disappear. Like it's a, a goal. It's unfortunate, but I think it's not like that, actually. Like no one, unfortunately, um, in, in those areas today are fundamentally interested in making violence disappear. Because again, like I think violence is a very central political resource. 
So when violence is such a political resource and when violence is so functional in the political system, how can you actually make it disappear? And in that case, of course, you, you could probably negotiate and I'm, I, I would love to see it uh, happen somehow, but, but I would also love to see violence reducing in Mexico, of course. But I think how, how can you extract and how can you change uh, the role that violence plays in the, in the, in the political system? Is the huge question that 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 we're facing, and again, that's where I think Central America has a lot to tell to Mexico and 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 vice versa, and that we should be probably um, talking about it uh, much more. Actually, thank you, Roman. Um, our colleague Anna Sergi uh, poses a very interesting question, and she is separating uh, exercising power compared to exercising violence. And so, you know, of course, you can use one to activate. The other and so she's asking you to comment um you know if we if you have from your own research um you know these separation of you know power and violence and how you think about that uh in the context in which you research so anyone who wants to jump in feel free yeah i'll, I'll be i'll be very sure to let everyone participate i think it's a it's a very good it's a very good question that actually goes towards, again, trying to analyze the relationship between public authorities and, and, and private groups, right? So um, when, we, when we say that the state is actually present and the state is actually capable of, of, of exerting power, it's capable of doing it through violence, but also through other means. And it's also true for, for private actors, actually. Like, I think we tend, especially in the Mexican case, honestly, to follow spectacular violence and to pretend or to associate spectacular violence like narco stuff basically to power and and just like absorb criminal groups propaganda for example uh, and and the more you know violent and, and and spectacularly violent they are the more we associate it with power like like violence means power and actually when you get to the ground you do realize that there are so many different actors that actually exert power without being spectacularly violent. And that's what Hema was saying about political elites, for example. And that's, again, what's counterintuitive and unfortunate about what's going on in Mexico is that at the local level, many times, unfortunately, political elites are very powerful, but they're not against the use of violence to achieve more power. Actually, they fuel violence in many ways, in more discreet ways, probably, that, you know, narco videos that, that, that are extremely sexy and, and attractive for everybody, but that probably hide what's really at stake and in, in terms of, of control and power and in that sense and again Hema has worked on this much much more than, than than me like power might be very discreet but I think it didn't really change in terms of in structural terms in in Mexico in the past in the past years basically yeah perhaps I can I can just add to that uh, I mean first I wanted to refer to the question of, of the uh, gang truce in El Salvador and just um, like Sandra was mentioning the, the work of colleagues I also want to uh, mention the work of our colleague Angelica Dora Martinez who has been working on uh, comparing I mean on a comparative basis between Colombia El Salvador and Mexico especially Colombia and, and Mexico trying to understand the um, short-term, long-term consequences of this type of uh, agreements uh, between state actors and, 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 and criminal actors, and also Miguel Cruz, Jose Miguel Cruz, that has also worked on this, especially in the context of El Salvador. And I think their work and others, what it shows is that 
I mean, you can, uh, this kind of violent reduction strategies, which are very much uh, short-term and also again driven by short-term political goals, have the disadvantage that they do not aim at tackling the social and institutional roots of violence. And therefore, uh, even if they deliver results, these results are very, I mean, they, we can only see them for a very short period of time, no? I mean, and, and they can have, you know, consequences that we will see uh, later on. No, I mean, so in the case of El Salvador, we know homicides went down uh, for quite some time, but then like extortions didn't. No, I mean, and other types of crimes uh, that kept that continue to affect people in in their everyday lives and in their sense of security, like uh, were very acute still. No, so so these are very. Um, I mean, the, the problem is, I think the the question is not necessarily like if. Um, if a state actor should or not negotiate with criminal organizations, because I think they, they negotiate all the time, no? I mean, and I'm gonna come back to that when I talk about the history of state building in Mexico very briefly. But the problem is that in the present, those processes are not transparent and not, not informed by a peace building approach that again tries to really tackle the structural and institutional basis of this current security crisis, no? I mean, so because they are so short-sighted, um, if violence and violence reduction becomes the only aim, it really can backfire, no? I mean, and have these detrimental consequences for security, such as, again, extortions and other crimes uh, continue growing, or even worse, no? I mean, like criminal organizations then have incentives to hide this violence, no? Which is the work of Angelica, no? I mean, the, you know, the mass graves that we suddenly see in Mexico is because criminal organizations or groups are giving the signal that they should be hiding this violence uh, in order to gain favors from the government. Um, now, let me just very briefly refer to the fact that I believe that, I mean, if we abandon this kind of like uh, macro level uh, analysis, uh, and if we look at how security and violence is negotiated at the local level, no, I mean, at the community level, then we will see that every day um, criminal actors uh, or what we call criminal actors are negotiating not only with the state actors, I mean, with, with local police, but also with members of the community and with civil society organizations. And these negotiations happen all the time because they are, everybody's interested in seeking some sort of equilibrium or, 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 or they are interested in merely surviving. No? I mean, so there is always a back and forth in terms of like what type of violence is allowed or not. No? I mean, and, and in my work, in my historical work on lynchings, what I found interesting is the police and those perpetrators of lynching sometimes agreed and sometimes disagree of, on who, which person deserved to die, no? I mean, so sometimes the police and the, and the quote unquote lynch mob agree that this criminal deserved to die. So the police participated in the lynching or they simply uh, stay put, no? And, and as in many cases today in Mexico, they didn't do anything or they didn't intervene in order to save the, the suspected criminal. In other cases, there were clashes. And so the lynch mob ends up lynching the police that tries to intervene or in other cases, the police comes and reprimands those members from the community. So what I claim is that ex there exists um, unstable, but there exists a consensus between citizens and state regarding the support for extra legal forms of violence against suspected criminals. And one could extend this argument to say that criminal organizations, of course, are also supportive of these extra legal forms of violence. Thank you, Gemma. Sandra. So we have a couple that I think, um, I know there's another one uh, there, but two that I think can go uh, hand in hand. One relates to 
violence and prevention programs um, in Mexico that didn't have the expected impact in reducing crime rates. I believe we can extend this, this question also to Central America. The other one relates to um, how do we an analyze the links between organized crime and politics in Honduras, where the organized crime took complete control over the state and where uh, is a civil society in this constellation. So if you want, we can start uh, or we can continue with those two and then I'll, I'll go on to the Brazilian and then the Mexican cases. Um, thank you. These are very interesting questions. And um, I think the crime prevention question um, brings uh, a, a lot of reflection on really bad policy making process and, and, and lack of understanding of the theory of, the theory of change, right? Um, uh, why did they not work? Because they were not crime prevention programs. Uh, there has been a large misunderstanding of what crime prevention means and what we can do. And I mean, uh, Omen in, in, in Mexico Evalua, they have a very fine work on why is it that crime prevention programs in Mexico haven't worked. Uh, we have been trying to deal with, uh, uh, with crime through um, programs with, on, on sports, right, dance, and um, all kind of, like these are things that are not going to have a repercussion if they're not very well uh, uh, grounded, first of all, and if there are no indicators for the for following up with all the for, for all the attendees and participants. And then, if we're only focusing on primary level crime prevention, which were most of the of the initiatives that were taking place, these were not about tertiary prevention, thinking about victims and and right and. And, and violent actors. So that that I think that's that has been a crucial point on how this hasn't been um, really working working out with the success that we would expect. Of course, there's a, a major challenge. How do you do crime prevention when there there has been so much violence that has been evolving and erupting, right? And we're now we're in 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 a process in which violence has expanded and, and diversified as a, a, the, the research agenda by Cecilia has shown and that it, it is well beyond homicides, right? And it's well beyond extortion now. So uh, crime prevention is, it, it's a, of course, something that we should be thinking about in a more grounded way, focusing, not, not think, thinking only in primary and community crime prevention programs, but thinking in, in, a, in, in, in from a, a larger and broader perspective. Uh, uh, but at the same time, also being aware of the of the processing which we're at and in the way that uh, Gemma and Roman have already been referring to, right, in which we have the state being um, part, an essential part of how organized crime evolves uh, and, 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 takes, and continues to take place. Uh, in the how uh, Guillermo Trejo and I have uh, referred to it in our recent book, Votes, Drugs, and Violence, is thinking about this gray zone of criminality, which I think goes back to uh, uh, to Anna's point before, right, on how uh, this overlap means that these different violent actors can, uh, in, in different ways, right, uh, be overlapping and be doing the same the, 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 the same kinds of, of, of activities, right? And sort of sometimes uh, separate their actions, sometimes uh, actually doing them in, 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 in very open collusion. But that is why thinking about crime prevention in that regard sometimes becomes, um, um, it, 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 it falls short, right? In that sense. Uh, 
However, I think that there is uh, still something to be working on for the crime prevention initiatives that have been uh, going on in Mexico for, for many years now, which I, I, I'm sorry to take it back to, to the agenda that I was presenting before, which is about how do we, you, you build capacities for local communities? How can you build capacities for communities to be more resilient? And that's something that at least we should be working on from that crime prevention perspective. And that doesn't mean workshops, right, on, on, on a different kind of makeup sports, right? And, and it's not about that. It's actually, how do you build social capital? How do you make people know each other, right? How do they, do you build networks? Uh, networks are, are crucial here. And that's why we have sort of, when we talk about the Hido Social, we don't know what that means. We just talk about it randomly and we don't really know how to, to actually make it happen. And that would happen through a grounded crime prevention strategy. But it's it's a lot more popular, right? And it's more, it's electorally uh, more resourceful, right? <laughs> to think about something that tells you about money, participants, right? And something that is enough show of, and that will be bring off some electoral payoffs. And that's because to, to build to build real social capital, it takes time. Uh, and, and even uh, there's another question there in the Q&A button, right? Say, asking about what has changed with the about abrazos you know balazos on their on their amblo. Well, that hasn't been that hasn't been a crime prevention program. It's a social it's a social policy program with an electoral right background behind, and that does that cannot help to alleviate crime when crime has evolved to such a level in which the state is part of it, and 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 we continue to think of of this at the federal level, instead of building capacity at the very local level for both communities and for municipal governments, which I think that's a piece that, we're, that we continue to, to dismiss in the policymaking process. Uh, Marcos, please. Yeah, if I, if I just quickly may add uh, from violence prevention projects in, in Guatemala, which I studied a bit, like 2010 to 2014, USAID was having a massive violence prevention project of over $50 million. But this coexisted actually with the logics of other agencies of the US having a much more iron fist, uh, anti-gang policing, in, even in the same municipalities. So you would then have a more pacification oriented strategies next to the beautiful sports grounds and schools that, that Sandra mentioned, that we, which in and of itself is a quite simplistic idea of solving that longstanding and complex crime problems with a four year project of, of remodeling uh, modeling public spaces. So I think that was a problem. But also what was unexpected is that um, you would not come to uh, as an advisor externally going to a, a a municipality where everybody is waiting for you to implement a, a crime prevention project. So there are like very complex uh, demands and clientelistic networks. Even then, like if you talk then to community um, leaders, for instance, we're like, yes, we want to have a sports ground here, and we don't want to have these gang people here. So you you notice that there's like a fight going on, that there's new exclusions and new grievances co-created, which are often unintended consequences. And that's what I meant when I talked about. Uh, these kind of projects not reflecting sometimes local power structures and, and, and ideas that people uh, might have and, and, and not every citizen is waiting for USAID to saving them against the gangs. So that's, that was also a major problem, I think, um, that we often can see uh, in, in Guatemala. Thank you. So I think we have a number of questions that get sort of at this core of what can be done, right? So Sandra, Marcos, you already touched on that a little bit. And I think we have an interesting question also asking about, you know, in light of, you know, your analysis, how do we think about international security assistance, you know, think about the bicentennial framework on Karsi. And so, of course, this is not a question that 
us academics often have good answers for, but you know, the floor is yours to, you know, to take a stab at, you know, how do we, you know, what what can be done and what has shown has shown to have worked. Yeah, I mean, maybe I can I can start just by um, I mean going back to the question of the um, I mean how prevention has or not worked and just mention briefly like there was this study by Vanderbilt University a few years ago already uh, trying to measure the results of USAID uh, preventive programs in Central America and and actually that study showed that there were. Um, very positive results. I mean, in several in several regards. I mean, and so I think that's that's a that's a a point of reference that is worth mentioning. I think overall the problem is that not only Mexico and Northern Triangle of Central America, but in general in the region, um, when these these type of preventive programs are implemented, um, there is no uh, established or negotiated criteria beforehand in terms of how are we going to measure success. And oftentimes the measure of success is violence, re violence reduction, which when it's measured only in terms of homicides, we have already discussed how problematic that can be, right? I mean, because uh, just focusing on homicides means that then again, criminal organizations may have an incentive to hide this violence, no? Or, or, or homicides might go down, but then other crimes might increase. Um, so, so I think part of the of the of the real challenge is something that Sandra was already mentioning, which is that in many of these, um, uh, you know, like crime prevention programs or even uh, programs that look at more like the bigger picture of what is the what are the structural or social causes behind uh, criminal violence, uh, the problem is that. The, the process itself should become there should be seen uh, as the end result. What, what do I mean by this? No, I mean in many of the programs that have a work across the region, and I'm talking, uh, I was uh, working many years ago as, as as a consultant for the United Nations Development Program a report on citizen security in Latin America. And what we saw then is that what has worked across the region. I mean, and I'm talking about cases such as Fica Vivo in Brazil. Like uh, I mean, in different periods of time in in different countries. Uh, are initiatives that bring together uh, communities uh, with uh, civil society actors, with academics, uh, with people from the public sector, and that creates some sort of um, opportunity to have a public dialogue, no? I mean, and, and somehow, again, like, create social capital, no? I mean, but how do you measure that? I mean, and in what time of like time period is that feasible? No, I mean, this is this is part of the challenge, no? That as I as I was saying, like we're living in a in a time of um of punitive populism, no? I mean, so these type of measures and, and these type of programs, which will deliver results only in the long term, or which measures of results cannot be um, cannot be taken uh, for granted and cannot be measured in the in the short term, they are not attractive for politicians, unfortunately. Now, what are some of the lessons? I mean, I, I, I saw one of the questions was regarding CARSI, you know, the Medida Initiative, you know, and what to do and what to how to move forward. I mean, the good news is that the Biden administration has uh, at least pledged to drastically change uh, the principles informing Merida Initiative that were in many ways also those that were shared by CARSI. No, I mean, so so now in the new relaunch Merida Initiative that I can't remember how it's called right now, but the North American New Security uh, Agreement, um, the 
offering uh, some sort of uh, assistance uh, to increase the resilience of communities and to tackle the structural and social uh, causes of violence is number one. No, I mean, so instead of like having as a number one uh, objective dismantling criminal organizations, is this issue of tackling the social and institutional roots of the problem. So that's that's promising. No, I mean, how do we do that? It's another conversation. I don't want to uh, keep keep on talking. The only final point I want to make, I think. North America, Mexico, and the United States, and I said that recently in a, in a policy memo with the Wilson Center, is at the very least to adopt a policy of no harm. And what does a no harm approach mean? It means demilitarize or really decrease the presence of the military in security responses. I mean, that is at the minimum what this country should be doing. I mean, in response to migration, uh, coming from Central America and Mexico, but also in response to several forms of criminal violence. Thank you, Gemma. Roman, I don't know if you would like to jump in. Yeah, thank you. I think I think um, Sandra and, and, and Gemma and, and Mark has just um, laid the ground for, for a, a very fruitful um, conversation about, about it and, and the complexity of what we see in, in Mexico and, and Central America. Um, and again, the dialogue between Mexico and Central America, I think, is very rich because it connects and at the same time it's it's really different honestly like what we see in mexico and i know that that marcus has been writing about it is is basically the way international cooperation for example or international agency or international think tanks in general approach uh, violence in mexico as as we were saying during the entire conversation apolitical actually um and try to actually make it fit into other uh, schemes of violence reduction, uh, peace building, all, all that violence reduction kind of uh, um, dogma that is applied in so many other places in the world, right? The other half, I think, or the other end of the spectrum actually sees Mexico and wants to see Mexico as an internal conflict, basically, as a war, right? So you have... Um, I think in that term, like the media and again, like international think tanks, bringing concepts that come from armed conflict from somewhere else, posing it to Mexico to actually pursue an agenda of seeing it as an internal conflict because it suits uh, international cooperation to see it that way. And then when we can, when we come to violence prevention and reduction programs, I think what 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 um, what 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 you were mentioning is is extremely interesting. That basically we have. Um, a measure for success that is so many times actually designed to suit the donor and absolutely not the situation itself, right? So you can actually do something very good. You can actually measure success in your own terms, but it doesn't really fit what's going on in, in, in the ground, right? Because usually I think uh, international cooperation and international funds in those cases that do not really want to invert um, the money in understanding or just in like basically having time to research and understanding what's going on at the local level. And it takes time, of course, but actually applying measures that are, again, measurable in terms of their own success, right? So you actually build a football field, right? It's very concrete. You see a football field. The mission is, is a success because you said the success is having a football field, right? So of course, then you can say that, that, that it was a success, but you don't know what's going on on the football field, for example. And in that sense, I think it's important to actually promote the idea that 
money in that case uh, from international donors, international cooperation should go to actually understanding and documenting more what's going on on the ground, understanding the ties between, as Sandra was saying, civil society and violence at the local level, what's being already done when you get there, basically, what works, what does not work, and where is the state in, in, in all this. And then I think what, what Hema was saying at, at, at the end, like, First and foremost, probably demilitarize what's going on in Mexico and Central America. Besides the discourses, besides the speeches and all that, what we see is at best a status quo, honestly, right? It's at best the use of the army in that case or a new you know, armed police under military command that follows the same exact rules that we see and that we have seen in the past decade in Mexico, it's reactive, basically. You have a crisis that pops up in Zacatecas right now. Nobody was, you know, following Zacatecas two years ago. Now Zacatecas is the heart of the crisis in Mexico. You have dozens, hundreds, thousands of dead people for years. No one does anything. Then the violence becomes spectacular. You have, you know, 10 people being hanged on a bridge in Zacatecas. The media gets in. It becomes like unbearable for the federal government. The federal government reacts and send like 3,000 troops to the, to the region. And that's the same recipe over and over. So basically, the more we follow a militarized reactive approach, the more we just put like a small, you know, a small cure on something that is much more complex and that we're, I think, yet to address and confront in, 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 in proper terms. And again, I think the, the work you have done, Marcus, on, on the way the international cooperation sees violence in the region is extremely important in, in, in that sense, and that we, we, should, we should pursue that uh, much more, actually. Great, so we have about six minutes left, and we have one um, question about the relationship between migration from Central America and the politics uh, or decision-making in the region and in Mexico, considering that migrants are increasingly criminalized and they also transit through areas that have high levels of violence. So if any of you has a short comment on that, and then we'll we'll wrap up the session. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll start since I was mentioning before this this question of uh, of migration. And, I, and as I said before, I mean, the I mean, in the most recent meeting uh, between North American leaders, uh, Mexico, Canada, and the United States, they, they pledged to uh, foster a new approach uh, towards Central American migration, uh, allegedly based on the question of institution building, uh, institutional capacity, and tackling also the socioeconomic roots of migration. But what I believe it's missing is, again, I mean, this can be very effective or could be ideally effective in the, in the medium or long term. But in the short term, like in the immediate term, what we need is again a policy of no harm, a vision of no harm that stops criminalizing migrants and that really de-escalates the presence of the military in the borders of these countries and that creates a safety corridor that protects Central American migrants and Mexican migrants from the harmful and violent effect, not only of criminal actors, but also of state actors. No? I mean, this is again uh, a dimension when we see 
most clearly the politics of violence and crime in Mexico and Central America, because my Central American and Mexican migrants are not only being um, impacted in their security and their integrity by criminal actors, but also with the complicity and with the active participation of members of the military, of the police uh, and, and, and other actors uh, linked to the state uh, in these countries. So that's, that's what I would say, that this is an area where there is definitely a, a need and a strong need to change uh, and there is a need also in public opinion in Mexico to really stop. Um, there was like a certain discourse um, that also from public opinion and from civil society was starting to criminalize Central American migration. I mean, seeing Central American migration as linked to the increasing presence of maras in Mexico or, the, or, or them providing like foot soldiers for criminal organizations. This needs to stop. I mean, this, this certainly won't help. Uh, all, only feeds into this uh, criminalization of migrants and, and, and really as civil society, as critical academics, we need to change this discourse. Anyone else? Super quick comment on that. Okay, if not, I'll just um, thank everyone again for joining us either in your morning or your afternoon. And of course, a special thanks to our panelists. I have shared again, uh, the form where you can sign and support CIDE. This is a tremendously difficult time for Mexican academics and specifically for academics like Sandra who come from CIDE. So please uh, sign, support and, and share widely. And again, thank you everyone for joining. Lots um, to think about and certainly we hope to continue this conversation in, in a different venue. Thank you everyone. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.